We're in John 13. Uh, we're in John 13, 20, 21 tonight. We're going to make it to the end of John 13. So we're plugging along in the book of John. Uh, just as a heads up, we're trying to make it to the end of John. I don't know when that's going to be, but we're trying to make it to the end. That's, that's our intention, uh, is that we would preach through this entire book. Um, so the text is turning. Uh, the text is turning in a different direction. Um, the first half of the book, I've mentioned this several times, the first half of the book, Jesus is calling people to repentance and he's calling people to believe in him. Uh, and that's what he's been doing this first half of the book. And he's been doing it increasingly more, increasingly more strongly. That's too many Lees in that. In- increasingly more strong. Okay, he's growing stronger in the way that he is calling to repentance and he's calling people to believe and calling people to submit to him. Um, and so at the end of chapter 12, he sort of made his last plea to the public. He won't be making any more public claims. He won't be saying anything in public anymore. He won't be speaking to the public anymore. Uh, this next half of the book is basically him turning to his disciples and saying, take comfort. This is what it's about to be like. There's going to be things you don't expect. There's going to be things you don't understand. But I'm sending my spirit to guide you, to encourage you, to lead you. So he's, the whole feeling of the book has changed. It's been repent, be baptized, repent and believe, repent and believe. And now it's turned to just his disciples, these intimate conversations, and him just saying, take comfort, don't be scared. I'm about to leave. It's about to get crazy. I don't even want to tell you what's about to happen because you would wig out and run away. But it's like he is, he's just turning and he's comforting these people that have been walking with him since the beginning, these 12 guys. Uh, so, that's, so you're going to feel that. You're going to feel that sort of shift in the whole tone of the book and the whole tone of uh, what John's saying to us through the text. So uh, I'm going to read the whole thing uh, and then we can, we can talk about it. So uh, we're going to read 21 all the way to verse 38 tonight. That's uh, John 13, 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is him, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. If you don't know what that means, I don't know what it means either. That was just convoluted. But uh, little children, 
Yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Woo! That's crazy. Um, that whole thing is just heavy. Oh, it's sort of ominous and dark. Um, and this whole thing is awkward, right? Like the whole thing is, I mean, I, I know it, we read the Bible and we're like, we just sort of read it and we don't really like sink into what's really going on. But this is, this is awkward, man. Like they're having dinner and they're celebrating this Passover feast. And then Jesus is like, first he gets up and like Joe talked about last week, so they're laying on the ground eating. That's how they ate back then. And Jesus gets up and takes off his clothes and washes their feet. And then there's that weird exchange where Peter's like, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus is like, Evan, don't wash your feet. You don't have any part with me. And he's like, okay, wash all of me. And then Jesus is like, no, Peter, I'm not going to wash all of you. You're clean. I'm just going to wash your feet. And so Peter's looking foolish already. That might explain, I mean, I think that explains why what happens here. He tells John, he's like, John, ask, you ask him. I'm not going to ask him. Um, so, but yes, very awkward. So he does that. That's very weird. Very packed with meaning, though. And then Jesus, again, so he lays down, and then he's like, there's only, there's, there's only 13 people there, Jesus plus 12. And he's like, one of y'all is going to betray me. So it's not like a big room like this where I could be like, one of y'all is going to betray me. It's like a very small, intimate setting. And these people have been following him for probably about three years now. One of you will betray me. And I'm sure they're like, uh, nothing, nothing else? That's it? That's all? Okay, thanks, Jesus. And then so Peter, knowing he's, he fumbles with words often, that's when he's like, John. So John apparently, John calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. That sounds arrogant, but I think he's just actually got a very good identity. Um, but Motions to John, and John sort of leans against Jesus. And John's younger than the rest of them, so I think he can do things that the others can't. So he sort of leans up against Jesus. And that would look weird. They're laying next to each other, and he's like, <laughs> right? Jesus? <laughs> Very weird. But who, who's it going to be? And so Jesus, again, doesn't, he doesn't go, Judas. He doesn't do that. He goes, I'm going to dip this bread in this wine. And then I'm going to give it to somebody. And the person I give it to, that's the guy. It's like, so awkward, Jesus. But that's what he does. So he dips this bread in wine. And there's a ton of meaning there that I'm not going to talk about. But there's a bunch in there. Bread and wine to think communion. Think about what Jesus says of himself. You've got to eat my blood. I mean, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. 
And he's literally taking a symbol of that and saying, here you go, Judas. And then John's like, oh, it's not me. And it's not Peter, right? And then so, so awkward. And then, so, and then he starts, after that, I guess everybody just forgets about it. I don't know. I don't, I don't see how they don't realize what's going on. So then that just happens. And then he looks at Judas and he's like, what you're going to do, do it quickly. And then all the other disciples are like, is he going to get stuff for the feast? Or? It's like, seriously? I think I would have been like, no, that's the guy. He's the betrayer. But no, no apparently everybody's like, well, we must be just going out for a stroll or a cigarette after dinner. Um, but no, uh, very weird. So, so this whole thing is awkward. And then he talks about, leaving them and them not being able to follow. And then he talks about being glorified and God being glorified in him and then being glorified at once. And there's all this language about how Jesus is going to be glorified, about being lifted up. So he's not being exalted. He's being crucified. Where they think him being glorified means him being lifted up and exalted. Um, What's really going on, what John's making very clear is when he starts talking about being lifted up, he's talking about being crucified. So there's all this like, okay, you're about to die. They sort of understand that now. You're about to die. You're going somewhere that we can't follow you. What's going on? Uh, And there's so much here, but there's something really important that I want us to sort of land on here. Um, So so after that sort of awkward interaction with everybody, uh, it says, this is verse 31, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified. God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Briefly, uh, the, the destruction of God's servant equals the glorification of God and the destroyed servant. So it's just, a, it's just the way the Greek language works. They like to like be poetic, but it's not really poetic in English. It just sort of sounds redundant. And you're like, okay, we don't like redundancy in the English language, but apparently the Greeks love it. So they just were like saying the same thing over again. They really want to get you the point, the point across that this is glorifying to God to lay the wrath on Jesus. Like this is a glorifying thing to God and to Jesus ultimately. Uh, so then... So he's saying this is not happening because I don't want it to. This is, this is God's will. This is God's plan that I leave you and be crucified. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. So they completely thought that when he said that to the Jews earlier, I'm going somewhere you can't go, it was just like, y'all don't believe in me, so I'm taking me and my band of people, and we're going to Spain, and we're, like, we're heading out, and we're going to stick together, and then, you know, screw all you guys, we're out. But he's now turning to them and saying, no, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm leaving you too. And then this is where I want to land here. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So by this, you will know. By this, everyone will know that you are a disciple of Jesus, not that you pass out flyers to them, uh, not that you pray for them, not that you evangelize to them, not that you give 
money to them and then say, that's from Jesus, and not from giving hamburgers and saying, hey, we're doing this because we love you in Jesus' name. Like, not because of any of those reasons, not because of any good Christian deeds, not because of evangelism, not because of service, not because of anything else, but the way that Christians love Christians is what the text says, is how, is how people will know that you're disciples of Jesus. So, I want you to also look at something else that's there. You, you gotta, John is really intentional with the way he puts stories together. He's making a huge point because he says, I want you to love in the way that you've been loved. And so how have the disciples been loved? Okay, well, just look at what just happened. There was this foot washing where this guy who says, I'm God in the flesh, is going to stoop to a servant, the lowest servant in the house, and wash his disciples' feet. He's going to wash Judas's feet and Peter's feet. Okay, so he's serving these people. He is the God of the universe who spoke the world into existence, who spoke life into existence, who created things that we for the last 5,000 years have been trying to comprehend through like science and mathematics and arithmetic. And we're just trying to comprehend the way this thing was put together. He speaks that stuff into existence. It's a product of his mind. Then he becomes a human and he serves people. He takes off his clothes and he washes their feet. And he washes specifically Peter, Pooter, Specifically, Peter's and specifically Judas's. Jeez, I should have just not even said anything. Uh, so, so this command, this command is placed very strategically. I'm sorry. This command is placed very strategically between two stories: the story of Judas and the story of Peter. Love as you have been loved. So, he loves Judas the same way he loves Peter. The same way he loves John. But what does Judas do and what does Peter do? So, love the way that you've been loved. I've served you, Judas, knowing that in your heart, you are going to sell me out for 30 pieces of silver. Knowing that. It even says before he washes their feet, knowing that he has all authority and knowing that Judas was going to betray him, he takes his garments off and he washes his feet. Okay, so we have Judas now who in his heart has like, we don't really know what's going on with Judas, but it, all it looks like is he, this thing isn't going the way he planned. He thought following Jesus was probably going to mean some high place in society uh, J- Jesus is going to take over, going to take over Israel and, and defeat Rome. And then this new kingdom is going to come in and Judas is going to be there with the 12. And now he's seeing, oh, Jesus is going to die. Okay, let me try to make a little cash off of that. So, so Jesus loves Judas knowing that Judas will sell him out with malice in his heart and no good intentions. Sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. But then, what about Peter, right? So Peter's the story right after the command. So then Peter tells Jesus, so, so, Je- so Jesus loves Peter the same way, knowing that Peter, like two nights later, I think, yeah, something like that, very, in a couple days, Peter, who just said he would die for Jesus, is going to stand outside the building where he's being tried, where Jesus is being tried for death, 
He's going to stand outside that building and he's going to warm his hands over a fire and a servant girl is going to say, hey, you're one of his disciples. And Peter's going to be like, no, I'm not. He's going to do it three times. And, and then in one, I think it's in Mark, and I think in Mark or Luke, in one of them, between the second and third time, Peter looks at Jesus and Jesus looks at Peter. And then one more time, he denies him. Then the rooster crows and then Peter is just broken. So yeah, betrays Jesus, but not so much malice in his heart as weakness, right? So Jesus is going to love Judas who betrays him with malice intentions. And then he's also going to love Peter who just is too weak to follow him well. And he's just going to love them both the same way. And so he makes this command of unconditional love. I want you to love. I want you to love in the way that I have loved you. The way that I have loved you is unconditional. Without condition, I have loved you. Knowing everything you would do, knowing the worst that you would do to me, I loved you and served you and will still go even lower to the cross and serve you in that way. So he's making this huge, huge commandment. I give you this new commandment. It's the most impossible thing you could imagine. You need to love unconditionally in the way that I, Jesus, have loved you. So, okay, so my question then, and, and literally without, um, without judgment, without like looking down on you, like how is it going? <laughs> Sweet. All right, Demonje, all right. Yeah, as you think to your daily life, does unconditional love just pour out? Does it just pour out of you? Now, let's not even talk about uh, believers to, to people who, who don't even claim Christianity. Let's not even talk about that. Let's talk about people who have the same values as you, who think the same about God as you, who understand the biblical New Testament commands the way that you do. Does unconditional love just pour out towards them? Does it just sort of like, oh yeah. I think if you ask my wife, she would tell you that's not the case for me. And I think, I'm not going to say all of you because I don't know. I'm not going to presume. I think if you ask people close to you, you would find out that's probably not true. It's probably not true of most of us. I think I've got like one day out of the month. I've been working hard. It used to be like an hour out of the month. I think we're getting there, making steps where this sort of unconditional love, like love without pretense, love without any sort of selfish need behind it, service without anything that I need, just like whatever, that sort of love. Does that flow out of you? And so what, I'm, what I don't want to do is this. I'm not saying at all, you just love crappy. You're just not good at loving people, so try harder and do better. That's uh, I, I, it's not the point at all. I want you to soberly think about, do, do you feel like love is something that just sort of naturally pours out of you? Oh, but, but I think if we look at the command, 
I think we, we tend to, especially if we're good Christians, and if y'all are still here like, you know, what are we, like eight weeks into the semester? I'm just, y'all are all good Christians, okay? If you're still coming here and listening to me and Joe yell at you, you you're a good Christian, okay? So I think a lot of us who are really trying hard to please the Lord and really trying hard to walk in this way, I think we take that command to love and we're like, yeah, I need to do that. I need to do that. I know I don't do well. I know I don't do well. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to try harder. And so we're sort of left with, yeah, I know I'm supposed to love. This isn't, Jesus calls it a new commandment, but y'all have been in church. So it's not a new commandment for y'all. But I think if we look at it again, I think we'd see where, the, where we fall off. I don't think it's because a lot of us, I don't think it's because we don't try hard enough. So what does he say? He says, I want you to love in the same way that you have been loved. And so I think my question tonight as we talk, or as I talk and you just sort of listen, um, the question is not, do you love well? I think that question, yeah, that's a good question to ask, but I think the next question in, in line is, do you, do you really feel like you have been loved? Have you, does the experience of God's love, does the security of God's love, does the sureness and faithfulness of God's love so permeate your existence that it just sort of flows out of you? Because if you see the command, it's, it, it's predicated on, your ability to love is predicated on you having received that sort of love. You having and knowing and understanding what sort of love God has for you. And so I think the question is not, do you love well? Because it looks like that's just the product of something else. That's the product of really swimming in and sinking deeply in and anchoring in the love of God towards you. And so that's a question that I really want you to think about. Like That's a question I really want to, to know if you can answer well. Like, does daily life feel like the love of God towards you, which just overflows into the lives of people, does your morning, and, and I'm, I'm going to say this honestly, for those of you who do like try to read the Bible in the morning, try to pray in the morning, does that time, does that experience, does that let the peace of God wash over you? Does it let the love of God sort of fill you up and that you sort of meet the day knowing, okay, I know God loves me. Like I know He is going ahead of me. He's making my path straight. If trouble comes along, I know it's because He allowed it for my good and I'm going to walk through this with faith because I know that He loves me. He'll do anything for me. Like, is that, is that the condition of life? Because if that's not the condition of life, and I tell you, you need to love your enemies. The people who have betrayed you and treated you poorly, you need to love them. If I put that burden on you without you swimming in the love of God towards you, I've just yoked you with a burden that you cannot carry. I've just put something around your neck that is so difficult and I think a lot of us have taken on that, that burden and taken on that yoke, and we've done it without the precondition of having received the love of God towards us. And so, think, think. Not, do you, I think we get this conceptually. 
I think you've heard pastors and you've seen it on billboards when you drive down 59. Like, God loves you. God loves you. Okay, I'm, I'm not talking about the conception. I think all of us have that conception in mind. Okay, I know God is love and God loves and la, la, la. But I'm saying, does it affect daily life? Does it affect daily life? In, day in, day out, does the love of God, His care for you, does it affect you? Do you believe it so deeply that you face your trials, your successes, you face your failures, you face your blessings, you face everything with just like, yeah, my Father in heaven loves me. It washes over me and I just sit in it. And so I, I, mean, I, think, I think some of you, yeah, I think some of you, yeah, I have conversations with enough of you to know, yeah, I think some of you, yeah. But I think some of us know. I think some of us knew you would have to answer that and be like, no, no, no. Like I read the Bible in the morning and it's quite frustrating because I've had a youth pastor since I was like, whatever, how 13, tell me, read the Bible every morning and pray every morning and let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding is going to guard my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus. And then I go and I read the Bible and I'm like, what does this mean? What's it talking about? This is really frustrating. I've got all this stuff to do today. I'm going to try to pray and then it's sort of this like, you try to pray in your head and you're just sort of, I don't know, then you pray and then you start thinking about a test or you try to pray and you start, you try to pray for your mom and it's like meeting with the Lord is just sort of like, ah, it's like spotty. And then we move along. And so I, I think for most of us, like if we really talk, like if I got to sit, and here's a sermon like this and ideas like this come across very poorly in a setting like this. Uh, something like this needs to be talked about like one-on-one, uh, but this is the limitations of the pulpit, so that's okay. Uh, I want to try to handle this idea as best we can uh, from here in this setting. Uh, so we have right expectations. Uh, so as I talk about experience, and I talk about, have you experienced the love of God? Do you know the love of God? Do you sit in the love of God? Do you rest in the love of God? Do you have peace because you know that God loves you? I am talking about experience, and I think what happens, though, uh, is we begin to talk about experiences, and experiences are important uh, because experiences corroborate what we believe to be true. So the way I look at life, the way I understand life to work is our beliefs are going to be the foundation from which the things we consistently do, our practices, flow. And then out of that will be our experiences, our stories. This will be daily life. But I think a lot of us define truth by daily experiences. So we define, does God love me based on what's happening around me? So we're not settled in and, and sinking deeply in, I know God loves me. What we're settled in is like, How's life going today? Is life going well today? Okay, God loves me. Is life going not so well today? Okay, God doesn't love me that much. I don't feel that love. And so we go to the Bible seeking this experience. We go to the Bible seeking this feeling. And the Bible doesn't provide feelings for you. I'm sorry, but it doesn't. And then you get in there and you're like, oh, oh, oh this, is, this whole thing is weird and dumb. And then we sort of kick that off until someone up here guilt trips you into having a quiet time again. And then you try it again. And and then you're like, oh, this is great for a week, and then same, same sort of cycle. So when I talk about experiences, I do believe experiences should corroborate what we believe. If you never experienced the love of God in your life, then I'm going to begin to ask you, okay, do you really believe that he loves you? Do you really believe that he loves you? 
Because your, the foundation of this is going to be what you believe. It's going to play itself out in daily practices. And then you're going to have stories of the love of God, uh, the care of God in your life, the love of God in your life. So experiences are important because if you've never experienced anything like that, then we begin to ask questions like, okay, is this something you really believe or is this just something you have a concept of? These are things you have notions about. I think for a long time I had concepts and notions about God being a loving God and God caring. But did I believe at the core here that that is the way he is? That is his feeling towards me. So then the question is, if that's true, if, if, I, if I don't really know what that's like, if I don't walk in the love of God, don't experience the love of God, okay, so how do I get to a place where that is true? Because if the, if, if, if the command is love as you have been loved, okay, how do I get to that place? Right? How do I get to the place of, of really sitting in the love of God? like experiencing the love of God and letting that wash over me on a consistent basis and sensing his love throughout the day, right? That's an important question because if that is going to be the precondition for the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with our heart, mind, and soul, and your neighbor as yourself, if that's going to be the greatest commandment and the precondition of it is having experienced the love of God to love as you've been loved, it seems like this is an important thing that we don't just sort of gloss over. That we don't just sort of, okay, let's move throughout the day and just keep trying this out and work hard and pray and try to have that quiet time. This is going to be good for you one out of every 27 days. Um, so, um, so, yeah. Does the love of God affect you? Have you experienced the love of God, experienced comfort from Him, peace from Him, or is that not the case? Is it just... Um, and I think what's huge, I think what's huge, I think a lot of the reason that we do not walk in the love of God is because our paradigm of love has been damaged. I think most of us understand love. We understand our paradigm of love. We understand love to work. And, w- the, and the way that we understand love and that paradigm is shaped by uh, imperfect people. Uh, that paradigm is shaped by parents, siblings, and grandparents, um, friends who were not great friends. Uh, I, I, all of us have that. We all have it. So, I mean, I think some of us, a lot of us have great parents, but they're imperfect. And so the way they approach love, you're, you, it's, it's not going to be perfect. So I think a lot of us have, our paradigm of love is so damaged that we don't receive love well. We have blocks in the way that we receive love because our paradigm of love is damaged. And so... Um, and, and I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna list off a few, just, uh, just think about if any of these ring true. Uh, think about if your, your life growing up, um, if love from your peers or from the people in authority over you, so peers or parents, let's say that, was love predicated on your performance? Was dad and mom really happy when you did well and praised you and said that they loved you and said everything was great when you did well, but when you did poorly, it was like always the hammer coming down because they wanted to shape you and mold you into this person who could handle life and who could succeed in life. And so you got pummeled for failure and you got praised 
always for success. And so while, while being praised for success and being addressed for failure is not in and of itself a bad thing, if grace is never meted out to you, if grace is never meted out to you, then your paradigm of love is going to revolve around your performance. Love comes as I perform well. Love does not come as I don't perform well. So the idea of an unconditional love, while we hear it talked about in here, does not land for you. That doesn't land. Because God still loves you because you had a quiet time, because you did well, because you don't cuss, because you don't drink, because you don't do all these things and do all these things, then uh, God loves me. But then when I hit failure or when I finally see, wow, I am a broken individual that can't meet the commandments of God at all. Okay, here comes failure and now God does not love me. God looks at me like this and he's like, what's wrong with you? You're an idiot kid. Come on, like pick it up. Let's get this together. You see, you feel me? Our... Our paradigm of love can be so shaped by our past that we don't receive love from God in this beautiful, unconditional way. We receive love in this damaged way based on performance. And so our life becomes a performance. There is no rest. There is no peace. There is no joy. There is no assurance of the love of God in my life because I view God as a taskmaster who wants me to do well and doesn't want me to do bad. And so it's, that's life. That's life. That's life. And so that's damaging. But that's, that's just one. I mean, there's a thousand other ways this goes wrong. Think about if acceptance from your peers was just so important. And this is really big for me. Acceptance from my peers. And so I could sort of sort of know what people want. They could sort of understand what people want. And so what I would do was sort of, I would sort of corral who I was to what they would like. And so my life for a long time was just a series of masks that I put on in front of the right people to look the right way in front of those people to gain acceptance from them and to gain love from them. And so if we understand, if that's sort of the way we got acceptance as kids, is that sort of the way we walked as kids, is that sort of the way we still are walking in college and I'm just going to sort of paint my face up and be this certain way and so I can come in here and do this church thing, I can leave and, do, and sort of be something else, I can sort of put this mask on and I'm doing it because I need acceptance, I need love, I need people around me to say you're okay you're good everything is fine in the world and we love you and so when you do well when you perform well when you put the mask on and and give people what they want then it's like yeah 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 that's good and so you drink up this acceptance you drink up this love because you do need it so badly you need it so badly but deep 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 in here there is this sort of nagging feeling of if these people really knew me they wouldn't love me these people really knew me they wouldn't love me. So then here's the mask. Here's me. And God doesn't want you or the mask. Or he doesn't want the mask. He wants you. And then I think another huge one. This is another huge one that's heavy. Our paradigm of love is shut off because someone who was supposed to love us, someone who was supposed to care, someone who we were supposed to trust, abused us and mistreated us. And so love, let's not even talk about broken paradigm. Let's just say, well, like that whole paradigm is shut off. So never trust anybody again. Never trust a man again. Never trust anybody in that way. And without trust, there can be no love. So you shut off to that. 
completely and you sort of go through life now as this this person without who doesn't experience love, who doesn't experience deep emotion, who doesn't experience deep trust, who doesn't experience these things because the paradigm was so bad you just shut off to the idea of love altogether. So you walk through life sort of static, like a robot. And that's just like three of a thousand ways that your paradigm of love can be misshapen. And then so, you've got this misshapen way that we view love and this misshapen way of receiving love. So you become unable to receive this love from God and just sort of let it pour through you. And then what do you do? That doesn't work, so what do you do? You take on the yoke of religion and the yoke of loving in Jesus' name and evangelism and you just try and try and try and it just doesn't. This doesn't do what these songs say. It doesn't do what the people around you are talking about. It's just sort of like, ah! So, um, man, I, before we jump into what to do, like before we jump into that, like how do, you, how do we get past that? I mean, I just want to say, uh, before we jump past that, I think uh, let's, let's not even jump into the application right now. Like, I, I, to those of you who's, whose lives are a performance and like to receive love you've had to perform okay god the father has done all that is necessary for you to be loved and so the life of jesus is yours and the death of jesus covers everything that has ever been done wrong and that he does not see you as a failure he doesn't see you as someone who does good and does bad he sees you as his child he has paid an infinitely high price for you he paid his own son for you to bring you back into the family jesus is this perfect elder brother who has given his own life for your life to restore you into the family of God so that God the Father through Jesus looks at you and says I love you you don't have to perform for me I love you even if you fail I love you even if you don't read the Bible I love you even if you don't pray I love you I love you I love you I love you I want you to sit here and I want you to know that I love you you don't have to perform you don't have to do all this stuff you just put that away you can put that away because that's religious and I don't need it I want you to know that I love you so much that I would give my son for you. Like I would give him for you. And he did. And the son was glad to accept it. Because it glorified the father to pay his life for your life. It glorified the father for that. God is glorified in being good to his children. He's glorified in it. And so if your life just revolves around performance, before we get into like, Here's how we fix that. I mean, honestly, we can't do that from the stage. Just hear that the Father has an infinite amount of care for you. And you can put down the performance. He wants to just love you. And the same thing for those of you who felt like you've had to put on a mask to be accepted, especially in the church. You do not have to wear some religious mask around here. You can come in here. You could grab somebody and be like, hey, my life is corroding around me and here's all these terrible things that I think and I feel and I do and I guarantee you, I I can't guarantee for everybody, but if you grab the right person, they're going to say, hey, I understand. I'm just as broken in here. And if we don't allow the cross 
and the blood of Jesus to meet us there, there's no other place for it to meet us. It is the blood of Jesus that provides your acceptance. It is the life of Jesus that provides your acceptance. You are accepted among the people of God aside from your knowledge of theology, aside from your good performance, aside from you living this righteous, holy life. That all is the product of resting in the love of God. It's the product of it. It's not you do this to be loved. It's like I believe in Jesus. I am loved. And now I sit in that love. I rest in the love. It's the most important thing for your daily life is to sit in the love of God towards you. And it's very real that if we don't sort of understand where these blocks are coming in and we don't sort of understand how the love of God affects us and moves us, you will continue to try this sort of Christian rat in a wheel. And it will never provide. You will never feel the rest that you need, that you so desperately need. And so the Father is just constantly saying, I love you. Come on. Let's put this stuff down. We can go somewhere else. We can put aside all this performance stuff. You don't have to put on a mask. You don't have to be anything else. Like, let the people around you know you. Let me know you. And if, if your paradigm of love has just been discarded because you've been abused by the people around you, I would say it's not your fault. The things that have happened to you have not tainted you. They have not done anything to you that the blood of Jesus does not fix and the victory that Jesus has won does not cure. Like, it is okay to sort of bring that stuff to the light in front of people who you trust and allow the blood of Jesus to just begin washing over that. You are not dirty. You are clean in Jesus' name by the blood of Jesus. And that's something that he has done for us because he loves us. And that is not your identity. That does not do anything to you. That doesn't shape you. It is not who you are. And so the blood of Jesus and the life of Jesus is the foundation for all of our approach and all of our understanding of self. And if we don't begin to walk and experience that and live in that, it's time that we said, okay, I don't know what that's like. I don't have any idea what that's like. And to bring that to the table to people that we trust and people that we know and ask them to help us walk through that. So, uh, just, just very quick, quickly, I want to say something about how do, we, how do we walk through this in daily life. Christianity is learning to let our paradigm of love be shaped by Jesus and nothing else. So this is where belief comes in, that we learn to anchor in what we believe. And so I think what happens a lot to us in daily life is we're sort of set up to receive, like we believe in Jesus and we believe in what he's done and we set ourselves up and we say, okay, I do believe in that, I, I do believe that, um, but you live in a world that tells you something differently. You live in a culture that says, no, you do have to look a certain way to be accepted. No, you have to do certain things to be accepted. You have to, there's so many things. You, we live in a culture that's got all of these things and so what happened is we accept a lie and we put it right here and we say, oh, okay, I do have to look a certain way to, to be accepted. And so I start striving and striving and striving and striving. Um, so the beginning, the beginning of walking in the love of Jesus and walking and experiencing the love of God towards you, the beginning of it is deciding that you're not going to look at your circumstances to define his love for you. 
that you're not going to look at the fear that surrounds your future to decide whether Jesus loves you. You're not going to look at the way you were treated in the past to decide whether God loves you. You're not going to look up here to decide if God loves you. You're going to anchor into what we believe. What does Scripture say about the love of God towards me? Because right now, circumstances show me, okay, that He's not there and I can't trust Him. I don't know what's going on. But what do we do as Christians? Christians, Christians, we as believers, are taking what we believe and we're anchoring into it. So that when the winds and the storm and the waves hit and life gets weird and out of whack, it's like, no, 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 I've already been anchoring into this on a daily basis like I've been anchoring into this um, and we begin to anchor into that regardless of what we feel so we have to reject all of these notions we have to reject all of these lies that we've probably been told and operated in for most of our lives about what you have to do to be accepted what you have to do to get God to love you how you have to perform for him and how you have to read your Bible and how you have to do all these things and you have to reject that you have to intentionally say those are not true my father loves me because the blood of Jesus was paid for me he sent his son to the cross and here is where my paradigm of love comes from as I look towards the cross so you're going to see Peter sort of get this rearranged for him. So Peter looks at Jesus and he's like how come I can't come with you I mean I'll die for you and Jesus like would, would you die for me? It is way, 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 way more important to know that Jesus would die for you than for you to know that you would die for Jesus. That is way more important for you to know and sit in and rest in what it means that the Son of God would die to bring you into His family. What that means how that changes everything about you. That's way more important than the things you do for God. Because the things you do for God are going to flow out of that. He says in Isaiah, you do, what's the house? This is what he says in Isaiah. What, what is the house you're going to build for me? What, what are you going to do for me? My hands made everything. My hands made everything. There's nothing you can do for me. I don't need you to do anything for me. But this is the man to whom I look who's humble and contrite, trembles at my word. Trembles under the love of God towards humanity. So, uh, just practically, I just want to hit something very practically. If that is sort of the place that you're in, um, something that's been extremely helpful for me, just on a daily basis, uh, is... I've taken something, a very easy psalm. So I just want to say this. Like if that is the case for you and you sort of, uh, you're trying really hard to be pleasing to God, okay, I want you to discard everything you know about meeting with God. And I want you to try something this week. I want you to try, and if you've met with me before, we talked, you're going to get tired of me saying this, but that's fine. Um, if that is the case and, you just, and you're sort of in this funk or whatever, okay, try this. Just this week, I want you to try something. You discard everything you know about your quiet time and about reading the Bible and about praying. You just discard it. I want you to sit. I want you to acknowledge all of these things about yourself that you've accepted. Acknowledge all of these lies that you've accepted. You don't have to acknowledge all of them. Just sort of realize that they're there and they're going on. Reject them, right? And I'll show you how that works. Take Psalm 23. I take Psalm 23 and I say, this is what I believe about you. Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Father, I believe that you are my shepherd. 
He leads me to green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Father, I can't find green pastures. I can't find quiet waters, but I trust that you can lead me there. He restores my soul. Father, I trust that you can restore my soul. Father, I trust that that's what you want to do. I'm not going to work for you today. I'm not going to set up a list of do's and don't do's. I'm going to trust that you know how to lead and you know how to guide this thing. And so I'm taking all these things and I'm letting them go. And I'm just saying, God, I believe this about you. I believe you'll lead me in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. I believe that. I believe you'll lead me through valleys. I believe you'll lead me out of valleys. I believe you're with me. I believe that your rod and your staff, they're going to comfort me, that you're going to discipline me, that you're going to keep me in line because you love me. You're going to tell me things I don't want to hear because you love me. You're going to tell me things I do want to hear because you love me, and you're going to walk with me through this. And then at the end, right, is that beautiful, he anoints my head with oil, my cup overflows, and surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so I'm, I am not saying, do I feel these? I'm saying, Father, I believe these, and I don't care if I feel them today. But this is what I believe. And I'm taking all of this other stuff about me having to perform and what I've got to do because I'm a pastor and how I've got to look because I'm a pastor and all of this stuff, and I'm saying, no, that's not true. This is what I believe. And I'm so intentional about deciding what I latch on to and put in here and say, okay, I'm going to believe that. I'm going to operate by that today. I'm saying, I'm going to father. I'm going to operate by this today, by what I believe about you. And as you do that, you can begin to reject some of these things. And I just want to, like, that's just something I want to throw out. If that absolutely results in nothing good for you, don't do that, okay? If nothing results in anything good, like if you never really, like, walking in the love of God, you've got to say something to somebody. You've got to let somebody know. That's not where we ought to be. Like, love as you have been loved. You need to... Begin to experience that love. And again, experience is not everything. We ground in what we believe, but experience should corroborate what we believe. It should agree with what we believe. Right? So if I'm constantly letting my request be made known to God and I'm feeling no peace wash over me, okay, let's go have a conversation with somebody. Let's seek some counsel. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's what we're here for. So I want to sort of lay that out. Um, yeah. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. It's just alluding to the story we're going to see at the very end of John. Where John, I'm sorry, where Jesus restores Peter to himself and just says, I love you, I love you, I love you, Peter. You are going to follow me. He alludes to Peter and how Peter is going to, because of his great love for God, will actually be crucified upside down for what he believes. That's where Peter goes. But it's over this long journey. It's years and years later. It's after the love of God has been so certain in his life that it literally affects everything that he does. And then when he meets his end, Oh, what does the end of John say? Is it says, people will lead you where you do not want to go and they'll stretch your hands. Or they'll take off your garments and they'll stretch your hands and it's just like, oh. But Peter is so willing because he's been so washed 
by this love of God. He's been so cleansed by it. It's just this beautiful thing that he lives in and breathes in. And so that's, uh, that, that's, that's the point. That's the point. Love as you have been loved. And you have been loved more than you could possibly comprehend in your entire life. You have no conception of the love of God towards you. So I'm going to read this one thing really quickly to close this out. This is something I used to read to myself. I sort of took Psalm 139 and I turned it around. Um, so if you want, just listen. You, if, if you try to read it and listen, you'll get confused. So I sort of took Psalm 139 and I turned it around to where it's not David talking to God, but it's God talking to me. Terrell, I have searched you and known you. I know when you sit down and when you rise up. I discern your thoughts from afar. I search out your path and your lying down. I'm acquainted with all of your ways. Even before a word is on your tongue, I know it altogether. I hem you in behind and before and I lay my hand upon you. Such knowledge is too wonderful for you. It is high. You cannot attain it. Where would you go from my spirit? Where would you flee from my presence? If you ascend to heaven, I'm there. If you make your bed in hell, I'm there. If you take the wings of the morning and you dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, my hand will lead you, and my right hand shall hold you. If you would say, surely the darkness would cover you, and the light about you is night, even the darkness is not dark to me. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with me. I formed you, your inward parts. I knitted you together in your mother's womb. Praise me, for you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Like, it's just the most beautiful thing. If you put your name in there and just allow scriptures to tell you how God really does feel about you because of what Jesus has done, what does he really feel about you? Not what the world says he feels, not what your brain tells you he feels, not what life has told you he's like. What do the scriptures say? The love of God is towards you. He hymns you in, in front and behind. He knows your thoughts, right? 